Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today I have an interview with Malcolm Harris. Harris is a writer, critic, and journalist, and the author of, among other books, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World, which is the subject of today's episode. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation. To start, can you discuss uh, your relationship between your book, Kids These Days, and Palo Alto? Were they kind of birthed together, or was one an outgrowth of the other? I didn't really realize, actually, how connected they were till my friend Max reminded me that the original proposal for Kids These Days was like half Palo Alto material, uh, and more the contemporary stuff, but I didn't remember that that had been part of the original Kids These Days proposal. Which is funny that because that means twice I've like included like personal aspects in the proposal and then pulled them in the actual book. But so I guess it was there the whole time, even though when I pitched Palo Alto as its own project, it didn't even occur to me to go back to that proposal and look at that material. Okay. And how would you place your book? And we're talking about Palo Alto now. We can come back to kids these days because I have one or two questions about that. But how would you place your book kind of in this? bibliography of critiques of capitalism. You know, I'm pretty familiar with like the works of Eric Hobsbawm, for example, or, you know, some more kind of contemporary Marxist historians that kind of really look at the forces of capitalism and how we need to understand our history through theories of class and capital. So where would you kind of situate yourself in that world? Gosh, I mean, James Baldwin has this great quote about like someone... An interviewer asked him, like, oh, which which of your books is your favorite? Which do you think is going to, like, stand the test of time or something? And he's like, you can't ask me that, man. Uh, you don't get, can't ask the writer about his own works. So I definitely aspire to the tradition of some of the authors that you're talking about, right? Like Mike Davis, let's say, or David Graeber, who's not a Marxist, but is, I think, still in the kind of writing tradition that I'm interested in. And that this work has been, whatever, graciously compared to by overly kind critics, so I think that it's too soon, too soon to say where it will fall in that or in relation to that pantheon, let's say. But I did, think, for what it's worth, I did think Northern California and Palo Alto in particular was sort of underrepresented in these histories, Marxist histories of capital. And instead, most of the histories that we have of the area are either business history from capital's perspective, more or less, or like weird cultural studies, like California ideology stuff written by like two guys in England who'd never been to California, <laughs> you know, that is really detached from the actual history of the place and study of the place. So there was a, an opening, I think, in that scholarship that I was trying to produce work that could fall into, you know, where we'll see how useful people find it in the medium and long term. Short term, I've been really gratified with how useful people have found it. Yeah. Well, I think it's your book and California and American history that just came out a little while ago, which is kind of a social history of California, kind of a bottom-up history, are kind of providing some helpful compliments to, you know, those kind of I don't want to say overused because they're important books, the books of Kevin Starr, you know, those kind of broad mm -hmm. intellectual histories of California. And it seems like you're kind of 
you and Farragher are kind of approaching it from kind of a more economic perspective, which I think is a maybe, a, and I don't want to say corrective, because I think it's just a compliment to this broader history of California that yeah. we include. Yeah. And someone like, you know, Gray Bretchen, obviously, at the Imperial San Francisco is really important work in that history of Northern California. Casey McWilliams, you know, we, we can go back like further and further. We've always had radical historians of California, radical social theorists of California. But I think it's true that in in like history in particular, and I'm not a, a credential historian, but as I worked through this literature, California is sort of surprisingly underrepresented in American history, even in, even as it's a shorter time period than the full like national or continental history is. Yeah. And let's, since you brought it up about your credentials, let's talk a little bit about source material for this and kind mm-hmm. of the preparation of writing a book like this. It's a north of 700 pages, detailed history of California, a lot of fact-based stuff, and then also just really comprehensive in a lot of ways. Uh, can you talk about what the preparation looked like for that in terms of how you thought about compiling source material? Yeah. would probably horrify your listeners because as I said, I've got no, no graduate training in any discipline. And so I feel like my, my compilation of materials was really sort of promiscuous when it came to those disciplinary boundaries. It's like, I don't, I don't even know where they are. So I wouldn't know how to respect them even if I wanted to, Mm -hmm. which I'm not particularly inclined to do. So I wanted to make sure that I had a strong basis in the like pantheon of California history with some particular attention to the radical side, but also, you know, you got to read Kevin Starr and Kevin Starr is a really valuable historian as our, you know, Mike Malone is another example, you know, as a, as a historian and social historian of the Bay area in particular, who I think is incredibly valuable, even if he doesn't have an like ostensibly radical commitments or something, God make your way through those as well as, you know, the business histories that are compulsory, even if like something like, Relative advantage or what is what's the book? Yeah, is like I think overstated in its importance. Even if some of those books are overstated in importance, you still got to work through them. Or something like uh, Counterculture to Cyberculture by Fred Turner, which I think is a, is a, like the more valuable, much more valuable end of the, that like kind of critique of the the hippies invented the computer. Um, and at the same time, I was reading in like. Ethnic studies, Asian American studies, Chicano studies, Native studies, because so much of like specific work on the Bay that I that looks like history to me is in these disciplines and it comes out of these disciplines, particularly because the like ethnic studies upheaval and revolt and the establishment of that discipline is part of the same history that, that I'm writing. And so then you have you have a figure like May Nye, who is like you know, where does she fit into the official disciplines? I'm sure she has a history job, I think I, I would assume, but she's doing social history. And she's at the same time coming out of this like intellectual movement and is part of this intellectual movement uh, at the end of the 20th century and is still creating this work. So that's on the on the book end. So I would take, you know, a stack of books to the park that I was doing this work at the beginning of the pandemic. So I'd take a stack of books to the park and sit in the park with my stack of books. And I had a very complex like note taking system and just sort of work through as much material as I possibly could every day. At the same time, I was using a lot of digital sources, a lot of like recently digitized material that was sort of my relative advantage as someone both trained in uh, digital research methodologies since I was 10 years old 
And as someone working with newly digitized material, I mean, there's material coming out all the time that would have been much more difficult to find, whether that's 19th century material that's digitized on Google Books that I can find about the Palo Alto stock farm that is shockingly undersighted in, in histories of the area, as far as I'm concerned. Whether that's the the Stanford Daily Archives, which is like very well compiled digitally and searchable, pretty fantastic. Whether that's like computer news periodicals from the 70s and 80s that are now being held at, on the Internet Archive was another really great source for me. So you say comprehensive, but like I don't know, I like I, I got a lot of stuff at the same time. Like you could write this whole history and use an entirely different, maybe not an entirely different set of sources, but I was very aware doing the work of that like. Some of these decisions are arbitrary, like a lot of these decisions are ultimately arbitrary, it felt like. And so it's interesting to then have much more credentialed and experienced historians look at this and say like, yeah, yeah, you know, those are the books, like <laughs> you read the books, those are the, those are the books. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think everyone picks and chooses. I think that's the, just the, you know, that's, there's no other way to operate other than picking and choosing based on, you know, kind of your interpretive framework. So I, I, I think that I think it's fair to say it was comprehensive, but I, I also understand what you're saying as well. When I was reading your book, my mind was drawn to, and you brought him up already, Kerry McWilliams. In a lot of ways, I think you you and him have a lot of similarities in terms of kind of a nonfiction, but with an approach of uh, action as well and societal change. And the book, even though it's not cited in yours, that I thought was connected to your book was Kerry Williams' book, the, uh, California, The Great Exception. And his essential thesis in that is that California experienced many of the trends and challenges that would be later experienced by the rest of the United States, but did so earlier. Do you see yourself kind of taking this theory and applying it to Palo Alto in some ways that like Palo Alto is kind of a great exception? Or do you, do you see your uh, hypothesis as slightly different? I see it slightly different. Honestly, I didn't. I didn't get to the great exception until I probably had written that, like, section of the material. And so, uh, as like as valuable as I found his account, I didn't feel the need to like go back and write it into mine exactly. Though, of course, it's like his thesis is then incorporated into a bunch of other people that I'm reading as I'm going on. And it's hard, especially when you're doing like a pop book to. You want to like make the correct references so that people know that you've read the right things, as well as to give people the credit for their contributions to the history of knowledge production. And so people can situate you. And at the same time, you don't want to get too into the weeds of like academic debates and citational politics, at least out of the footnotes or the endnotes. I would probably keep that in the endnotes because I'm already asking a lot of the reader in terms of incorporating that. So there's there are like a few uh historiographical debates that i even just like leave out of the book and maybe we, we can talk about a couple of them and i think for historians that, that's been very noticeable they'd be like what like how is this giant hole in the middle like you've got a 700 page book and you didn't write about the california ideology one time you know it doesn't yeah. even come up in the book. like well, how can you do that and it's like everyone so can stories, always find something <laughs> right well no but, it, but i mean those are intentional choices and they're not wrong yeah. to see them and to ask about them but i, I like at I felt the need to make those choices, both because I had a lot of material and because I think some of those choices, the sort of status quo preferences choices are wrong. Like, I don't agree with them. Yeah. So, but back to the original question, do you see Palo Alto as kind of a great exception within and of itself and kind of in that California sense that he was describing? 
Yeah, I mean, what I call it is uh, like America's America's America, right? right? It's like Palo Alto is California's California in a lot of ways. And it was interesting doing this research, how much of the like part of the Southern California history is actually Northern California history that we attribute to Southern California because uh, like they've done a better job sort of selling that place. But if you look at like, you know, the history of the entertainment industry or the military industrial complex, or, you know, the things that we associate with Southern California, it's Southern California's industry is always an outgrowth of Northern California capital, no matter what industry you're talking about. Okay. I like that you started the book with this idea of a haunting. Most hauntings are portrayed in darkness in film in some ways, but I often find hauntings that happen during the daytime to be more chilling. I'm thinking of like the first season of American Horror Story where they're in sunny Southern California and there's ghosts kind of walking through in the middle of the day. Can you talk about why you chose to start with that and the suicides as well? Yeah, as, as I said, I originally had a much more personal idea for the book and that these stories were actually going to play a much larger role in the story. So in some ways, I could talk about why I didn't do that material rather than what that I did do, because I think it's a it's an important metaphor for linking, you know, the present and the past and this feeling of unsettledness with the present and the past but the more I worked through it, the more I the more I worked through that history, the more I encountered it in a different frame. Mm. And so I feel like I, it's like I walked around the world and came back and saw myself the back of my own head. You know, I was able to encounter myself as a character within history rather than as a like subject, if that makes sense. And so by the time I get to the suicides, which had been you know the frame for the entire book, that's how I sold it. You know, is like you know the haunted place of Palo Alto and all this capital and wealth and tech with these horrific youth suicides. But by the time I get or, you know, around the world or to back to this history and encounter my own life uh, as part of this history, I could only understand it in the context of this factory suicides in Shenzhen, which are happening at the exact same time by kids who are the exact same age. And I, I and I never would have like, Connect, it would have even seemed like presumptuous of me to connect those two things as a, you know, telling the story of my life. And I think it would have read poorly if I had gone about and said, like, you know, I was dealing, you know, the bell rang and my friend was dead and halfway across the world, someone was also dead in a factory. Like that would have read poorly, I think. I don't, I don't think it would have been good. But by actually f- playing out the historical thread, I can am able to encounter it in its actual historical global historical context in a way that I think allows people to understand it and allowed me to understand it in, in that context, which is, I think is the important place to understand it. Okay. We're going to jump now into some, some questions I have based on some of the chapters. I want to start with something that you talk about in the first section, the first chapter, and this is a quotation from you. It says, quote, what interests me is not so much the personal qualities of the men and women in this history, but how capitalism has made use of them, end quote. There's been a lot of fascination with robber barons and some of those uh, great history, long biographies of them. And uh, California is often at the center of the Gilded Age, both through railroads, well, Cold Rush prior, and then the railroads after, and then obviously the a proliferation of monoculture and agriculture in the Central Valley. Can you talk about why you're not interested in the personal attributes of these people and why you took kind of take this interpretive approach? Yeah, well, first off, I want to 
thank my, my comrades for letting me off the hook and letting me say capitalism, where we would normally say capital, because it is a trade book and I'm writing to a large audience. Yeah. So so I include the ism where we would normally wouldn't. But what I'm the things I'm really trying to get across both in the declamatory sentences in that section, but also in the structure of the book itself is that capitalism is not a question of personnel, right? It's not like the boss is the boss because he's a guy who's bossy. The boss is a, is a structural role and these are impersonal forces. And so to see at the same time, there's those impersonal forces are characterized by individuals. And so we have to tell, we still tell stories about history through individuals, but what we're really trying to understand is the social forces that they're characterizing. And there are some great, just great moments in the history of uh, this playing out, whether it's in the in Frank Norris's The Octopus, where his, like the character who represents Norris finds himself face to face with Shell Grimm, who's the representative of railroad capital and he has this great speech that i quote at length where he says like look i can quit my job but like i can't make railroad capital stop existing like you you misunderstand you know you're talking about men when you need to be talking about forces and then this this scene repeats itself in the 60s where you have anti-war protesters confronting the boss at one of the munitions factories the scene repeats itself in the 60s where you have anti-war protesters confronting munitions manufacturer, you know, directly in the same situation in the CEO office and saying, like, stop making napalm. And he says, like, look, I can quit, but, like, you, you misunderstand. You're talking about forces, not men. And so to tell this that story, again, through characters is difficult, but at the same time, I think it's really necessary. And Leland Stanford is such a great place to start because he's such a stuffed shirt, right? And that's we think of metaphors like that are really useful for talking about the characterization of social forces. Because like, what is his shirt stuffed with? Well, it's stuffed with these relations of capital that we're discussing, these like historical phenomenon. At the same time, like it's not him that's inside the suit, right? It's these social forces. And that's really revealed when you even listen to his peers talk about what a stuffed shirt he was. And so it's a good like foot to step off on, which is non-coincidental, right? Like Napoleon also gets described in, in similar ways by Tolstoy and by Engels and by others for similar reasons at the similar time, right? Like he, his stature contrasts with this, these like historical forces that he is embodying. Well, there's a reason we talk about people embodying these social forces at the end of the 19th century, at the beginning of, you know, the creation of the modern state and capitalist era. So Palo Alto as a object is really useful for telling not just a story about those social forces and how they're characterized in particular, but also in general about how social forces and their characterization by individuals come to dominate life itself on the planet Earth. Yeah, I was certainly thinking of Tolstoy when I was reading those sentences and those long passages in War and Peace where he's talking about, you know, great men don't drive history forward. If, if anything, they're just making accidents all the way through it. And I, but I do I think, think I it's- I one of them, one of them at some point. Yeah. I just I, started, I yanked one. 
I do think, you know, this, the great man theory of history is still so popular. I mean, if you go to Barnes and Noble and walk down the history section, you're going to see kind of row after row of, you know, these stories, you know, of, of, of glamorizing in some ways. And also I understand why people are interested in it because there is an attachment to person. And so I get the attachment to biography, but I also think it's true that it's just way overemphasized and popular historical literature that people access. And I think it just keeps reinforcing himself. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Well, and even not even just in the biographies, but like the interviews and oral histories. And so some of these books, you know, I don't want to call out anyone in particular, but some of these histories that you read that are based on interviews between the author and the same 10 great characters, those 10 characters are repeating the same stories that have been told about them for decades now to those authors. Those are stories that were written about them at one point and have now become the story that they tell, which then gets reported as, well, they told it to me personally. <laughs> so then that's the history. This is a firsthand account of the history. Well, these guys love telling stories about themselves. They're obsessed with telling stories about themselves. And when you dig into some of those stories, they might not be the case. You know, Some of them are literal marketing copy. And I found a couple of those. So when you're looking at like the history of computer graphics in movies, there is a, a point in time where Silicon Graphics is claiming that its terminals are being used in all sorts of movies that recently a historian has gone back and interviewed the technicians and they said, no, we weren't using those computers. It just wasn't the case. And that, but it's been repeated over and over and over in these sort of business-like histories of the place. Yeah, this is right on the heels of Walter Isaacson's new book about Elon Musk right. coming out, which, you know, so let's not chase this rabbit trail too far, but let's let's jump to the railroad system. Can you talk about the kind of the capital forming effects of railroads and how this, in your words, in some ways determine the future of capital flow in California? Absolutely. I mean, in a very literal way, determine the the present and future of capital flow in America. I mean, if we think about before the transcontinental railroad, which is only enabled by the breakout of the civil war, which pulls the, the Southern representatives out of Congress, which allows a Northern route to pass and financing for a Northern route to pass, uh, which I think people don't understand it as part of civil war and reconstruction politics and as a military measure taken by the Lincoln administration which is an interesting precedent, but it is. But previous to that, it's functionally an overseas colony for the United States. You know, if, you, if you're lucky, you take the route that Leland Stanford takes, which is down through the Gulf of Mexico, overland Central America, up the coast. You know, that's for rich guys. If you're broke, you got to get in your Oregon Trail wagon or whatever and take your, take your chances crossing a lot of sovereign territory, right? Territory that is not the United States that is worse than crossing an ocean. And so before you have that connection, it's not just this like Westward expansion, it's really America's Algeria. It's this overseas colony that's creating its own sort of colonial bourgeoisie class where you've got the guys, and they are guys, I say guys accurately, who are forming the capitalist class in California are like shop owners, right? They are not a big capital coming to move to California and start things off on the coast. They are colonists. They are the, the same sort of guys you'd see in other empires going off to the colonies and getting rich through the sort of original expropriation 
that we understand as now as genocidal. And so the, it's the railroads and the building of the roads stand for sort of the culmination of this process and their connection to the United States over land as one like continental empire. But the process before that, it's the, the genocidal original accumulation of clearing the land. The railroads are definitely a part of and the railroads help incentivize, but that's what's, what's setting the stage for this capitalist class in California. Okay. I was very intrigued by this description of horse breeding in the racing world and the Palo Alto system, as you described it, which I've kind of heard, I feel like I've heard of some of these concepts, you know, a lot of the podcasts that mentioned Y Combinator, for example, we'll talk mm-hmm. about, you know, finding, finding founders or whatever. Can you describe what the Palo Alto system is? Because that was by far the most interesting for me, part of the book and something I hadn't even considered and hadn't heard of the, the stock breeding business in, in Palo Alto. So can you describe that? Yeah, it's pretty amazing that the industry doesn't trumpet this as a sort of metaphor for Silicon Valley itself, because it's so perfect. And like you said, it still describes their values very accurately. But Palo Alto, the suburb, starts as a, as a project before the university as a trotting horse breeding and trading farm. And in fact, the largest, well, most well-capitalized one in the world, as befits its owner, Leland Stanford. And re- he was way more interested in these horses than he ever was in trains. And we actually know this project most people know this project through the photographs, the moving photographs of Edward Moybridge, because this stock farm was so well capitalized that one of its projects included the experimental invention of motion pictures as part of the horse breeding project. And so you see a lot of, you know, Moybridge was a really, really, really good self promoter. And so there are a number of books about Moybridge, and they'll talk about the stock breeding farm in the context of Moybridge, which I think he would find very gratifying, but it's really the, that's the, the tip of the iceberg of what was going on because horses at the time were not some frivolous pursuit. They're the engines of society quite literally. So, cause they're dragging agricultural implements, they're dragging streetcars, they're dragging boats through canals, they're dragging artillery on the battle space, you know, horses before they're replaced by the self-moving engine drive everything in society functionally. And because California farming is so technologically advanced because it starts on this capitalist basis, it's extremely horse intensive, horse and mule intensive. And so Stanford, when he's operating the Palo Alto stock farm, isn't thinking about gambling as it's sometimes described. He's devising an experimental engine factory. And he says, and he has this projection where he says there are, you know, 13 million horses in the United States. And if I can raise the value of every horse by a hundred dollars, then that'll be worth, you know, $1.3 billion. And that's our today equivalent of like $30 billion, whatever. It's very like tech founder startup logic. But so the Palo Alto system in particular was the idea that you could shorten the production time of these excellent horses by looking for the ones earliest that had the best speed, which indicated the best genes and focusing the resources on them. And before industrial, wisdom had suggested you got to wait till you raise the horses a little bit before you try and race them because 
you're likely to snap a ligament. And if you snap a ligament on your horse, your horse is a loss. You have to put the horse down. And Stanford, who can, who is a capitalist and can operate at such a scale that he can put those horses down, that it's worth it for him to shorten the production cycle, says, I'm going to do it anyway. And he draws inspiration from the early childhood education movement in Germany and constructs what they call a kindergarten track, which is a track for yearlings and small horses to try and run them as fast as possible. And the whole industry is very skeptical that this is going to work at all. But lo and behold, the Palo Alto system ends up producing the fastest, youngest horses in the history of trotting horses. It's a very successful program. Now, it gets replaced by engines as well as by Stanford University. But those ideas of heavy capital investment, scale, speed, youth, all the intangibles that we're talking about that are the Palo Alto system, if you go to Silicon Valley today, if you go to Sand Hill Road and you you know, mug some venture capitalist and you put a gun to his head and say, tell me about the Palo Alto system. He'd probably say those same kind of things, right? He'd say, oh, well, we're looking for the most potential as early as possible. And we're going to invest in a bunch and we'll just throw away the losers and we'll invest as much as we can, as early as we can on the winners. That kind of program starts at the very, very beginning of the town. Okay. Before we jump into talking about Stanford University, I'm going to ask you kind of a one-off question. And full disclosure, I've asked Richard White this question, who wrote a whole book on it. Uh, who do you think killed Jane Stanford? I think David Starr Jordan killed Jane Stanford. And I know Richard White probably would not say that. He would probably equivocate and he'd say, Bertha Burner probably, I think, is the is the like, you know, the one who pulled the trigger or pulled the yeah. tipped the poison into the glass. Mm -hmm. But I think that the statement that David Starr Jordan makes to the press between the poisoning attempts, where he says that there was no poisoning at all, that he's already involved that he's involved in the cover-up before the crime is actually committed, before the, the death is accomplished, I think is enough to indict him in my mind. Now what does that mean? You know, like, you know, we can't like prosecute him uh, after death and they've already started taking his name off of stuff for like other reasons or whatever. But like, I think he did it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it definitely seems like a conspiracy and not just a, a, a one-off personal grudge between, you know, someone who's working in the house and a mistress. So I maybe would tend to yeah. agree with you. Let's, let's talk about Stanford university. So and this is kind of a quibble that I had with your description. So at a certain point, you said that Stanford went from being a frontier university hamlet to a post-industrial center where men invented tools that shaped aerospace, communications, electronic sectors, and the era of global domination that they enabled. How would you distinguish that from kind of the idea of a land-grant university, which was something that emerged in the 19th century that kind of had a similar mission, which was to you know, create better scientific tools to improve agriculture? So I guess what I'm asking in some ways, is there something distinct about Stanford relative to this existing institution that was across the country? Yeah, I think so. Well, I went to a, I went to a land grant institution, the University of Maryland College Park, which okay. yeah, were, comes out of the same uh, historical period, right? Um, and there, as like a educational movement, I think is related because David Starr Jordan and a lot of his folks come out of Indiana, which is I don't exactly know where the land from Indiana went, but that would be my guess, and it was certainly about 
producing agricultural knowledge, and that's how he comes to Stanford. And I think that's definitely the vision that Leland Stanford had about uh, of of what Stanford would be, that you'd be training technicians. And when you look about at the history of education in California, that's really crucial. So like the first community colleges come to be around California because they're looking for post-secondary education around agriculture because agriculture is so technologically advanced. And so I believe the first community college degree in the country is at Fresno, is in Fresno, which is an agricultural technology center at the time. But Stanford, under the leadership of David Starr Jordan, does become a different thing. And you can look at it based on the, the fields that it chooses to focus in, which is less about agriculture, but more about bionomics, or what they called you, what they called bionomics, which is eugenics. And I was going to ask of, you next about that, actually. So you can just kind of yeah. go into that, because I wasn't familiar with that term when you were using yeah, it. Yeah, very interesting, right? Because it's sort of the subject that these this crew of guys from Indiana, led by David Starr Jordan, who becomes the president and leader of Stanford University, come up with. And so he teaches, by, David Starr Jordan teaches the subject of bionomics, as do his hand-picked eugenic supporting faculty out of Indiana, as well as from some other places. And this is basically like eugenics raised to an explanatory level for all of society. It's almost like how we now understand evolutionary psychology, which is that they thought they could explain not just biology through evolutionary competition, but sociology, anthropology, international relations, culture, Whatever, whatever topic you wanted to consider about the world, it was probably under, properly understood through this biological economics, right? Bionomics, which is in, interestingly gets, that term gets used again in the late 20th century, again, not very popularly, but it's interesting. And so the, there's this really strong interest in eugenics among the, the faculty, which partly comes out of the, the stock farm as well. Um, but there is, they're interested in humans. And so they've come to focus on it. They have one of the early education departments. They have an early business department, Stanford does. And they're focused on mining engineering is one of the, the early disciplines they're very curious about. And so they're, from the beginning, trying to produce high-tech workers because they see that as a way to increase the stature of this startup university in the world. And this is very successful with, with their production, first of mining engineers and then of electronics engineers in the next period. But you do you see kind of this discussion of like, what's a good founder or how to find a good founder is kind of in that discourse? Because I hear that so much. It's like, you know, it's less common these days is kind of there's been this reframing around the, the technology industry. And, you know, there isn't the same kind of worship of the tech founders that there maybe was five or 10 years ago. But do you see that kind of as the same discourse, just in different terms? I see the Palo Alto system as the same discourse in different terms, right? Yeah. Like you're, you're find, finding the right horse to bet on, like literally the right horse to bet on. Yeah. Um, and that's how they thought about it as well. And we're pretty explicit. And so if you even if you look at David Packard, people are often shocked to find out that David Packard wasn't just a good engineer, but he, David Packard was a good engineer, but he wasn't the best engineer. What he was was the best football player, <laughs> even that he was six foot five and a basketball player and a football player and homecoming king and, you know, the like stand around big man on campus. And they understood that authorities at Stanford University, literally the president's office, 
who's still David Starr Jordan, and then the Termins, understand him as evolutionarily superior to his fellow students, and so help him to found and lead this electronics company, as well as the electronics, local electronics industry. And he sort of has, is the one, it's Packard who says like, oh, and I'm bringing Hewlett, like Hewlett's really good. And they're like, oh, okay, like he seems fine. But they didn't care that Hewlett was like the, actually the better engineer who was about to design their first product that they really actually needed to launch this company because they were so convinced that David Packard was the man. Yeah. Well, let's, let's jump into some technology questions. I'm going to s- skip a little bit ahead in the book. So I just finished this book. It's really influential called Chip War. And it's about mm-hmm. the military and technology industry being intertwined from the space race to Vietnam, Cold War, positional politics in Southeast Asia. And this is, was an interesting section in the book talking about 9-11's impact on funding for technology and how it accelerated capital investment. Can you, I think a lot of us during that period in time, obviously we're focused on foreign affairs and you know, the war, but less on how the technology industry was positioning itself within this kind of global conflict. Yeah, the best example and one I use in the book, I think is Larry Ellison at Oracle, who within days of 9-11 is selling Oracle as not just like the answer to the country's security problems. He spins up this like national security response division, like right immediately in, in order to start contracting. And Oracle, for listeners who might not know, is a CIA contractor from the beginning. Oracle itself, the name was the name of a CIA contract at Ampex where Larry Ellison worked, that he spun off into his own company with the approval of his bosses. And so they're like, they've got national security and intelligence contracting is what they do. They're the keeper of databases. And that's been what they've done from the beginning. And so he, more than anyone, just jumps at this opportunity. And he says, I'll set up a national ID card system for everyone. I'll do it for free. You know, you just pay me to maintain it or whatever. And we can say it's optional for citizens and mandatory for everybody else. And this almost pass- this gets very, very close to passing. And there, someone should actually write, an, and it would be an interesting book to tell the story of the history of computerized proposals for a computerized national ID system. Because it's very interesting that we do not, we do not have one, that the United States does not have a central identification database and has never like gotten public approval to construct one of those, like a central repository that has everyone's information. But they got really, really the clo- I think the closest they've come historically, you know, they've been trying to propose this for as long as computers and this database technology has existed, which is actually not that long. But it, they got probably closest right after 9/11. And that was the last moment of sort of, right-wing civil libertarian and left-wing civil libertarian cooperation that stopped the like national ID bill but like it had democratic support and it had bipartisan support it was like we're very very close to living in the world where Larry Ellison who now is a like election denier and right-wing funder like has a national database of everyone in the United States and like immigrants have to carry around papers that they have to show to the police. Like we were that close and it was Silicon Valley more than anyone who's trying to drag us there. 
You talk about Google quite a bit in later sections of the book, and you talk about this kind of dual tendency, these monopolistic tendencies on one side and this practice of scraping. Can you explain what scraping is and how Google used it to kind of climb to power? Yeah, scraping is is an underrated, I think, aspect of our whole system. And it's because it's pretty janky that they don't want to tell you about how it's basically the basis for everything that looks really important, including and especially like the generative AI stuff right now. And scraping is just like when you or I read a book, you know, we have the memory of that book. But when a computer reads a book, they have a copy of that book because remembering and reading for a computer is the same thing. And so when you're Google and you can send what's called a crawler program to scrape the entire internet, which is to, to read it and basically reproduce it. And what the Google was looking for in particular was the connections between all those pages, right? They were looking for um, what was called backlinks. And so links within pages to each other so they could kind of design or have a picture of the structure of the web, which would allow them to point users towards the, the most relevant or most useful pages based on the architecture of all these backlinks. And that's something that's relatively easy to just tell a, a, to design a program that just reads the internet and spits out that information. And so they're using this sort of internet commons, what we might think of as an internet commons, all of our data to produce their, you know, privatized knowledge of its interrelations. And we're at the, you know, and that was a bunch of things, you know, Facebook was a scraper, basically, they were scraping people's pictures from the original Facebook at Harvard, and asking people to compare them, that was the original Facebook, like, all of the internet era companies, basically, that blew up like that, were scrapers, because scraping is cheap, easy, because you're using other people's content, and it can do some really impressive stuff really fast. And so we've seen huge investments in scrapers for decades now, to the point where we've got people who are trying to scrape the entire entire internet for its actual content, not for the relations between pieces, but for the, the entire content itself, and then like spit out synthesized pieces of information based on all of that what they're now calling training data, but that's what training a model is, is making it scrape tons and tons of information. Hmm. So towards the end of the book, you say that in some capacity, capital is exhausting, that it just pulls and extracts until there's nothing left. But I also know that we can't predict where the next gold rush is going to be. And in a lot of ways, social media has been so successful because they created data that then they could you know, use to make profits. So I guess my question would be is, do you think this kind of extraction process has an end or do you think that Silicon Valley and kind of these venture capitalists will find new things or create things uh, that they can extract from? Yeah, I don't think they're self-extinguishing, unfortunately. It would be nice if that were the case. Certainly, they've been able to invent stories about why people should give them tens, hundreds of billions of dollars, whether that's crypto or the metaverse or AI, we've heard, you know, that again, those are three hype cycles that have happened this year since the book came out seven months ago. And I think that that sort of increased rate of cycling has to do with them running out of actual substantial things to do and places to put that money. At the same time, that hasn't meant people stopped giving it to them because that actually means that 
that as far as capital is concerned, they need Silicon Valley even more because the the fewer of those great stories there are, the more desirable one of them is. And so like, I mean, Silicon Valley doesn't make any sense over the past 15 years if you don't look at oil money, right? So much, tons and tons of that money is oil money that needs to be reinvested somewhere in some story uh, that can promise 10, 15%, 20% profits. And there aren't that many of those stories. And a lot of them come from California because we're really good at producing those stories and guys who tell those stories. Yeah. At the same time, I don't want people to think that the lesson of this book is that Silicon Valley is just a scam and that it's just fake and that there's no real project there. Because I think that, that the history shows is that the real project there is the American project and that that, that is a real thing that involves investing capital in weapon systems so as to maintain an unequal place in the world for the people who live in the United States. And Silicon Valley has been crucial, crucial to that effort and becomes even more so over time. And so when people ask me after the book came out, oh, do you wish you'd included, you know, stuff about crypto? Do you wish you'd had a chapter about Sam Bankman Freed at the end or like, do you wish you talked about the metaverse? No one asked me anymore if I wish I'd talked about the metaverse because it was such a flash in the pan. But for a minute there, people did. And what I told them is, no, I talked about the switch to prime military contracts. And that's what people need to be paying attention to is Silicon Valley going from subcontracting for the military industrial complex to prime contracts, which is a real shift that's happened in the past years and it's meaningful and dangerous and important and like enduring. Mm -hmm. And that's different from whatever the latest give me tens of billions of dollars scam that is going on is. That's a substantial thing that we need to be paying attention to. And so I'm happy with, with how I ended the book in terms of the, where I was pointing attention. Cause I think that's definitely been the case. And I talk a little bit about, uh, you know, sanctions on Hong Kong chips being sent or Taiwanese chips being sent uh, to main, mainland China, uh, because that seemed very, very alarming to me. And like, it's something that was going to become increasingly important. And I, th I think it has. So, um, yeah, people should pay attention to that stuff because it is real. It's not it's not fake. There are people like putting stuff together with their hands throughout the world to make these people in California rich. Yeah. Let's jump and kind of take a 20,000 foot perspective on this. How has writing and researching this book changed your perspective, not on Palo Alto, but on California specifically? And while you do tell a pretty dark story, are there silver linings that surprised you in researching this book? Yeah, a few. So I talked a little bit about how I came to think of California as in overseas colony of the United States rather than some endpoint of some westward movement, which for me was like a total conceptual flip in my head, you know, even like for my personal identity, right? That changed what it, what I think of it means to be a Californian within the United States. It like, I understand it differently now. The history is much shorter than I imagined it to be before I learned more about it, which I think is true for any period or anything, it's in, things get smaller when we know more about them. But the level that it compressed was surprising to me that you can that it's five generations of people or whatever that we're talking about here in the Anglo-American history of Alta California. 
in terms of the politics, I didn't know about like what early 20th century, late 19th century internationalist politics looked like in the South Bay. Founding out about that stuff was super cool. So like Har Dayal and the the like anti-colonial movement in the early 20th century and the communist movement in the early 20th century in Palo Alto was very cool. As was, I think, learning more about the 60s and what the insurgency looked like in, in California, again, in the context of California as the Algeria of the United States. But I think ultimately the most, the thing that gave me the most direction in terms of how to understand it and how to move forward was learning about the indigenous history of the area and the ongoing political struggle of the Muwak Maloney, which I knew a little bit about, but was not like personally engaged in and didn't know the like current status of. And now I am, and now I'm part of the the campaign to restore the federal status of the Muwak Maloney and ultimately to reestablish a land base in the Bay Area for the 614 members of the Muwak Maloney tribe. To close, let's finish with book recommendations. What are two or three books, either from the research in this book that were interesting to you or, or books that are of interest now? Ooh, that's a good good question. I'm just going to shout out to some books now because I never never miss the opportunity. One that your, your listeners might like because it relates to the transnational history of California is Salar Mohandisi's Red Internationalism, which tells the story of the switch from a sort of Leninist, internationalist, anti-imperialist discourse to a human rights discourse in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Great book. I think people would be really into that. Um, my buddy, Mike Thompson, also just published a book called Cage Kings. That's a history of the UFC, the ultimate fighting championship, which is very, very interesting. And again, like connected to this history and I think interesting ways about the the like rise of these athletic leagues and like capital intensive sport in the 21st century. So people should, should check out those. Wonderful. And the last question, what's next for you? What's next for me? I've got a, a new book that I'm working on now. The, the working title is what's the working title. The working title is worth living strategies against disaster and despair i think yeah i think that's the working title as you can say the working title is a, a work in progress but it's going to be a a much shorter book about the current climate politics situation wonderful well i appreciate you taking the time to talk with me of course thanks for having me on Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by either giving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash historyofcalifornia. We'll see you next time.